Good morning. You have original artwork, uh, so I'll be glad to do autographs and things like that afterward because I'm sure you're thoroughly impressed with that. Um, it's great to be back. It's been a long time. It's been three years, and uh, we're finally able to travel. And when we talk about travel, we can think also of the word journey. Now, I'm not talking about the church that's down in, in uh, Warrington, but the, the word journey can mean a, a couple things. An act of traveling from one place to another. So we traveled from, well, I traveled from Amsterdam to the United States, Louise and Elise from Paris to the United States. And a second meaning is a long and often difficult process of personal change and development. A long and often difficult process of personal change and development. So Penn Valley Church has been on a number of journeys with the pastors that God has given to you. So pastors Griffith, Womble, Bull, Orm, Saunders. What will your next journey look like? Where will it take you? Who will lead you? These, are, these can be hard, anxiety-producing questions. Now, your church has sponsored Louise and myself. We're, we're members of this church. And uh, you have sponsored us on our journeys. And so this morning, we'll, we'll also talk uh, a, a bit about uh, the Dijon France church plant and the Dijon Fair Trade Cafe and leadership of Encompasses Europe team. Most recently, I'm senior director of Encompasses Church Planting Network. Our next journey, which will start in January, is missional equipping. And I'll tell you a little bit about that. But especially when you think of, uh, when I think of Europe and uh, church planting directorships, they involve traveling from one place to another, so a different place across Europe, but now to nine different countries. And I'm one of those people for whom travel, even 12, 13-hour plane rides and cross seven time zones, it, it doesn't seem to affect me like it does other people. However... The sense of a long, often difficult process of personal change and development, I don't think anyone is exempt. We all face that. We're, we're all subject to it. I'm not sure that any of us like it. And even the Apostle Paul. So we're going to uh, take a look at Paul's journeys this morning. And so hang on to your hats, your masks, your glasses, or whatever, because we're actually going to cover the whole book of Acts. Okay? And so... Paul's journeys took him geographically farther and farther. His, his first one was, was pretty much right around here, and the second one was a bit farther. And his last one, the fourth, was all the way to Rome. So his, his first journey was basically from uh, Philadelphia to Dayton, Ohio, on foot. And his last journey, 2,900 miles, thereabouts. So that one he did by boat. And that's pretty much Philadelphia to Los Angeles. So those of you who are going to accompany Judy Orm on her next uh, bike trip, uh, it will take you 18 days, 7 hours, 43 minutes, give or take a few seconds, if you don't sleep. Uh, it's, it's far. And so he, he did that. But rather than look at his distances, Let's take a look at what Paul learned on that long, often difficult process of personal change and development. What, what lessons did Paul learn along the way? And then we can think about, okay, so what have Paul and Louise learned through our journeys? What have you here at Penn Valley learned 
in your journeys over the years. All right, the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. Well-known verse, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So Jerusalem, Acts 2, you might be familiar with the story. If not, go home, read it. It's a great story. Peter announced the good news of Christ to his own people. He was Jewish, and he's announcing it to Jewish people. Geographically, you can't get closer. He was in Jerusalem. Culturally, you can't get closer. They were people just like him, same language, same history, same religion, same country, same background, same values, same references. They had the Torah, so the first five books of the Bible, the Law of Moses. They had the Temple. They had the, Old Te they had the prophets, everything, even recent history. The people in Jerusalem had seen and heard Jesus. They saw him do miracles. They heard him teach. The people in Jerusalem witnessed his crucifixion. They had all the information that they needed. And so for Peter, at the spirit-given moment, he just goes right for it. And he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Oh, He's made him Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other brothers, Brothers, what shall we do? They were ready. They were prepared. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> 3,000 people baptized. That's Jerusalem. Judea. You'll be my witnesses in Judea. Judea is the region around Jerusalem. So if you, for those way, way back, Jerusalem's here, okay? And Judea is, is this region. So it's kind of like their, their county. It's, it's right around there. And it's very similar. The people there are very similar to the people in Jerusalem. Same language, same history, same religion, same country, same background, same values, same references. A little bit of different geography. Maybe they talked a little bit funny, had an accent. Pretty much the same. Samaria is geographically farther from Jerusalem. So Judea is here. Samaria is up here. Now, now we're getting into some differences, some cultural differences, some religious differences. And that goes back into history because... We, um, the, the Samaritans, they weren't like the good, upstanding Jews of Jerusalem and Judea. They, they were considered foreigners. They were considered traitors because of their religious differences that dated back to a split between King Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And Jeroboam was the, the, the king of the ten tribes of the north in Samaria. And he said, Samaritans, here are your gods. Oh, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. He, he rejected Yahweh. He rejected the God of Israel and brought in new gods. So now we've got a cleavage. Now we've got a split. We've got a division. These are, they're just perceived as bad people. We don't want to have anything to do with them. But Peter and Philip, they end up going to Samaria. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Samaria too. And so they're going to they're gonna come up here. And if you remember, uh, now we're into uh, Acts 10 already. Peter is going to talk with Cornelius. And so he's, he's called from, he has a dream in Joppa, and he goes up here to Caesarea. So we're moving out geographically, but we're also moving out culturally. 
And so uh, these Samaritans, once again, different religious background. You might think of the origins of Penn Valley Church. They split from the Church of the Brethren over theological differences, okay? And uh, the Penn Valley Church wanted to remain faithful to the Scriptures, preach Jesus, grace, uh, salvation by grace through faith. And uh, so God is saying, Samaritans, people who don't believe in Jesus or don't believe in the authority of Scriptures, don't believe in salvation by grace through faith, they need Jesus now too. Acts 10, Peter says, he, he's, he's talking to Cornelius in Samaria, in Caesarea. You know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or associate with you. Ooh, that's harsh. But God has shown me I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So the apostle Peter needed to be convinced by God himself that he should associate with the likes of them. I don't think he liked them. They were different. They were different in so, so many ways. And Samaritans, you kind of spit the word out. Samaritans. They were different because Peter's preferences and values and religion and culture didn't allow him to associate with the likes of them. But the, this message, this apostolic mandate that Jesus gives to the church, it's the gospel going to the foreigners to the strangers, to people unlike Peter, to people whom Peter did not like. Hmm. People we don't like. They need Jesus too. And that's part of the apostolic mandate. That's part of going to people who are different. Now, it could be as simple as the students who live below Louise and me, yeah, she's laughing already, in our apartment building, okay? We have a, there's an apartment, and there are always four students in there. They change around about three time, two, three times a year. They're a different generation. They're a different, this is going to sound so petty, but it's, it, it's our reality. Okay, they're different generation, different values, different habits. The 2 a.m. party that they, that they had when I had to get up at 4 a.m. For a, for a trip, it just didn't help. When we, but, yeah, what do you do? Because it's a dilemma for us. How do we explain that certain behavior is unacceptable and at the same time being, be compelling witnesses for Christ? It, it sounds small, but it, it's kind of hard to figure out. And so there aren't easy solutions. Uh, Jesus said, pray for your enemies, so we do. And quite frankly, with this, this last crop, we've, we've seen progress in our relationship with them. And uh, you know, so God's changing us through some long, loud nights of the student parties below us. All right, so Peter, he introduces the good news of Christ to people in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then he's going to pass the baton over to Paul. Okay, Paul is from Tarsus, all right? So we're already out there, and it's going out, the gospel is going out geographically, but it's also going out culturally. And so Paul's first journey, it's uh, south, we call it Southeast Asia Minor, it's Turkey today. And so he's going to go there. And here on his first journey, let's think evangelism. That's kind of the key word because that's what he's doing. He's, he's going around sharing the gospel with anyone and everyone. Amazingly, Paul attributes to Barnabas and himself Isaiah's prophecy, uh, Acts 13, 47. 
I've appointed you as a light to the Gentiles. So Gentiles, anybody who's not part of the nation of Israel, think the nations. That you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. So now we're already Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. This is Paul's mandate. He's going to go to the nations. And what characterizes his lifelong ministry, he's revealing the good news of Jesus and starting churches among non-Jewish peoples, the nations. So, again, we can think of it geographically like an act of traveling from one place to another, and that applies to some of us. Some of you know Frank Poole. Some of you know Barb Wooler. Elise, our daughter, was here last week. Uh, Louise and myself. So, yeah, we, we go to different places. We live in different places. But we all need to think of journeys making disciples of all nations as a long and often difficult process of personal change and development. All of us. You've got the nations around you. Hey, you're aware of that. They're here. You don't necessarily have to travel somewhere to rub shoulders with, interact with people who aren't like you. And so the Spirit's transformational process applies to all of us, to you and me both. Paul begins as an evangelist, and he's announcing the gospel to anyone and everyone, including people who are totally different, strange, and foreign. So he goes to Lystra, all right? So now we're into Acts 14, and um, Lystra's here. So he's, he's really not all that far from home for, for Paul. But what happens there, because he heals a man, Acts 14, crippled in his feet, these Greeks think that he's Hermes that he's the messenger god Mercury, and that Barnabas is Zeus. Peter never ran into this stuff, okay? This is really different. These are different beliefs. It's a different worldview, going from monotheism to uh, polytheism. And Paul replies, but you have to understand, we too are only men. We're humans like you. We're bringing you good news. And what happens? The Greeks end up stoning him and leave him for dead. The people of Lystra were of different everything. Different language, different country, different history, different religion, different background, different references, different values from the people of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is no longer the center for these people. It's not down here. It's up here. This is Athens. Later on, it's going to be here, Rome. So we've, we've got different geography, but along with that comes a different mentality. It's a different worldview. And so the authority in Lystra is not the prophets from the Old Testament, what we know as the Old Testament. It's the philosophers. It's the Greek philosophers. Religiously, there's not one God in heaven for them, but the pantheon of all two human gods is different, everything. And the point is that Peter, Paul, on their journeys... Their sacrifice, their suffering, their enthusiasm, their perseverance shows that no matter how different the people are, Jesus' mission is always the dominant overriding principle. Always. Make Jesus and his riches known. Make disciples. And so we can apply that to ourselves. It still stands. Jesus' mission is still always the dominant overriding principle. And so Jerusalem, people just like us, so people from Telford Souderton, they need Jesus. Judeans, 
people like me. I'm from the north, Quakertown. Um, <laughs> I needed Jesus. Fortunately, Bill at Penn State shared Jesus with me. Samaria, people not like us. Uh, some of you know Vance and Jen Isbick in Poland. Uh, Louise and I shared a bit this morning. But so your church provided technical expertise. Thank you, Dean Stoneback. And funding, thank you all, for equipment so that they could live stream their Easter service and post it on Facebook. Okay, this is a church plant. It's, it's, a, it's a church of 30 people. And they live streamed and posted their Easter service on Facebook and have had over 17,000 views. Yeah. Amazing. What happened? How did that happen? Well, culturally, it's, it's Samaritan-like in context. And that, explain, that in part explains the extraordinary response. Obviously, it's a work of the Spirit of God. And Poland is nonetheless Western, so there are some similarities. They're Catholic Christians, so some religious references don't need to be explained. The Trinity, Christ's work. But they don't know salvation by grace through faith. There's not power in what they're living as unregenerate Christians who don't know Jesus. That sounds funny, doesn't it? Christians who don't know Jesus. But it happens. And so this little church in Poland, because of the life that they're living, because the presence of the Spirit, because they're announcing the living Word of God, they're making a big impact thanks to God working in and through them to reveal Jesus and his riches to the Polish people. The ends of the earth. Now, the, this, is where, this is where it gets really weird uh, because these people are incomprehensible to us, but we're also incomprehensible to them. Not just because of language, but because of geography, history, religion, background, values, references, ways of thinking, worldview, different everything. All right, so this is, this is like my guide in Vietnam. First time I went to Vietnam, I was, I've, I've been around, okay? But this one really threw me for a loop. And, and so Vietnam, you walk around, there are altars everywhere. They kind of look like these, these little potbelly stoves or about this high. And people put cans of soda, they'll put bananas, they'll put Monopoly-type money in front of them. I think, why are they doing that? Well, because they practice ancestor worship. They figure, well, we need to drink. We need to eat. We need money. Our ancestors must too. And so they, they do this. Now, we might think, well, that's, that's just silly. They believe it. They practice it. This is part of their worldview. Why? Because their worldview says that the ancestors are there, and the ancestors can, yes, bring good luck, but they can also bring bad luck. And you want to appease them. You want to please them. So we got to be nice to the ancestors. Now, I, I thought, okay, this is a 24-year-old math teacher, university-trained, urbanite, city of, of over 20,000. And I thought, yeah, she, she, doesn't, she doesn't believe that. Started asking questions. You know, to talk, about, to talk about spirituality and things. And... Um, she, she was my guide, by the way, because she learned that she could make more money as a, as a guide than she could teaching math. So, yeah. And uh, 
So I said, well, where, where are the ancestors? Well, she, she was silent. She didn't understand my question. I thought, I couldn't even formulate a question that she could understand. I was so incomprehensible to her. And then she said, oh, well, you're thinking about heaven and hell. Well, it's not like that. But she couldn't explain to me what it was like, not in ways that I could understand. She was incomprehensible to me. I was incomprehensible to her. That's what the ends of the earth is like. And so that's why... It just takes a lot of going to for these least reached peoples. They say the least reached peoples are least reached for a reason. Going to these people takes resolve. It takes perseverance. It takes time, not just to learn the language, but also the culture, the customs, the religious beliefs in order to speak about Jesus in meaningful ways that these end, ends of the earth people can understand. Praise God, our colleagues who have been in Vietnam now for 10 years, uh, just this last year, have seen two people come to Christ. Amen? Now, on his first journey, Paul, he evangelized, and he proclaimed the gospel of faith in Christ with anyone and everyone. Churches were started. His second journey, yes, he's going to go farther geographically, and yes, his journey of personal change and development continues. This time around... He's not just going to be in and out, but he's going to spend more time with the disciples so that they're well-equipped for the work of the ministry. Paul's second journey, he's going to go to Europe. Okay, now we're getting a little bit familiar. He's going to come over here, Philippi. And um, so he arrives in Europe, and he goes to Philippi, but then on to Athens. Okay, Athens, center of civilization. What happens there? He's getting farther and farther from Jerusalem. Yes. He's going to learn about contextualization. Okay, it's a big, long word. But it means being biblically faithful and, it's a both and. So biblically faithful and culturally pertinent. All right. And so Paul, he shares with these ends of the earth Athenians, and they're confused. Check it out. Acts 17, verse 18. Some asked, snidely. What is this babbler trying to say? They don't get it. Others guessed he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Why? They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. They weren't understanding him. He wasn't understanding them. So what happens? See, and, and he, his, his method was to go to the synagogue, and so the, to the Jews, he used scriptures as a starting point for presenting Jesus. Here, miscommunication reigns, so Paul, he's going to change tactics. And what he does, he uses their own Greek poets, their words, their concepts, literature that they understand as a starting point for presenting Jesus. That's contextualization. And he met with the members of the Areopagus. Basically, the Athens City Council. On the Areopagus, the Areopagus means the Hill of Ares or Mars Hill. Okay? In 2018, uh, Elise, Louise, and I stood on Mars Hill. It's, it's this, this little flat rock hill that sits in the shadow of the Acropolis, uh, 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 the um, Acropolis. Got my syllables mixed. And so 
But there, Paul, he's going to quote one of their, their, uh, their poets. And it's Epimenides. And he's, uh, in his poem, he says, this is Zeus talking to Minos. And you'll, this first part you'll, uh, you'll remember from the book of Titus. Cretans always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. Titus 1. He doesn't share that part here. But thou art not dead, forever thou art risen and living. He doesn't share that part either. What he does share is the end of that sentence. For in thee we live and move and have our being. This is right out of Greek poetry, and they knew it. He's taking what they attributed to Zeus and saying, this is the real God. It's kind of like today, you might take a song off of the radio that, that doesn't really mean the same thing, but you know, so that they understand, yeah, you know, they're, they're singing about love, but let me tell you about God's love. It's that, that sort of thing. He's connecting with them, having a starting point leading them to Jesus. And so he adapted his methods so that the true faithful message of Christ made sense to them. The result, end of Acts 17, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius and a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demaris, and a number of others. Now, we would have thought, well, that's a, that's a great response. But really, when you think of it, when you read Acts, it's pretty meager for what he encountered in the synagogues, people who were well-versed in the scriptures. These Athenians were different. They hadn't been reading the scriptures. They hadn't been hearing Bible teaching. And so they didn't have the background of those who attended the synagogues, and they were less prepared. Okay, so Paul's learning about contextualization. He heads off to Corinth. It's just right next door. And he's going there. Another shift takes place among these unprepared people, these, these people who are oh so different from his own Judaism. Paul stays a lot longer. Acts 18, 9 through 11. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I'm with you. Oof. Matthew 28. I am with you to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the age. And so, for, for I am with you, no one's going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. They didn't know Jesus yet, but he knew that they would come to him. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Paul devotes himself here more heavily to the disciple maturation process. He wants to not just see them become converts, but he wants to see them rooted in the word of God and strong relationship with God. This uh, transient evangelist, the Neil Cole, calls him now the multiplying mentor. Why is that? Acts 18. When he goes to Corinth, he's going to meet a couple people that we see elsewhere in Scripture. There he met a Jew named Aquilus, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Paul went to see them because he was a tent maker as they were. He stayed and worked with them. Now, Priscilla and Aquila were probably what we would call a mixed couple. Okay, uh, Aquila was, he was a Jew. Priscilla, the, the, the reigning idea is that she was from the Roman aristocracy. They made tents. Now, commentator Wanamaker, he tells us this, the workshop of an artisan, so think uh, tent making workshop, the workshop of an artisan was commonly used as a place for intellectual discourse. Okay, so they did something more than making tents. At that time, Paul, at the time of Paul, it was used by the cynic philosophers. 
So it's reasonable to assume that much of Paul's time was spent in the small shop where people interested in his message could come and talk with him while he worked at his trade. In Corinth, Elise and I, we went, when we were in Greece, we went there. And so you go and you can actually see them to the marketplace and you see the foundations of these workshops. And we, we probably walked by, I'm not kidding, we probably walked by the one where Aquila, Priscilla, and Paul made tents. And they're, they're basically these, these little cubicles. They, they still have the stones there. About, if you've been in the offices over here, about the size of one of the pastor's offices. It's about that big and then it gives out onto the street. That's where they made tents. People came in and they could talk. And so it seems that Paul, in making tents together, place of discussion, he shared the gospel. Priscilla and Aquila came to know Christ. And along with that, they worked side by side. Paul poured himself into them, talking, teaching, training. And he did such a fine job that he multiplied himself. There were now three Pauls. What do I mean by that? Acts 18, 18 and 19. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. When they arrived in Ephesus, Paul, he went off to the, the synagogue, as, as he typically did. Got the work started, but when the Jews asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. Then he set sail from Ephesus. Paul returned to Antioch, but left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. Now, Priscilla and Aquila, they continued on the church plant in Ephesus. Ephesus became known as the ideal church. They were the ones who did all of that. Paul got it started, but they were church planters like Paul. And there's a man, a Jew named Apollos, native of Alexandria. Alexandria, intellectual capital of the Mediterranean basin came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of scriptures of John. So when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. They didn't have to call Paul, say, Paul, we've got this guy. He can have great impact for the gospel. You need to get over here. You need to set him straight. They knew the scriptures. They did it. Would you be able to do that? Would I be able to do it? They could. Because Paul invested in them. Apollos then went on to have great impact for the gospel through his teaching, through his uh, apologetics. And so we see Paul pouring, investing, pouring his life into investing in Priscilla and Aquila's lives to the point where they become like Paul on apostolic mission to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So on Paul's second journey through this process of personal change and development, he learned contextualization, and he learned about multiplication. Disciples who make disciples, he could be in two places at once. Kind of nice. In his efforts to make disciples. So he goes on his third journey. This time he's going to go to Ephesus and practice multiplication. And there he took his experience, what he learned, the lessons learned on his other journeys in discipleship, teaching, equipping, in evangelism that he developed with Priscilla and Aquila. And he created a school for church planting, Acts 19, verses 8 through 10. Paul took the disciples and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. 
This went on for two years so that all the Greeks and Jews who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. This is all happening right here. Now, if you can see all the way back there, there are these little crosses because F.F. Bruce tells us probably all seven churches in Asia dressed in, the Revelation, in Revelation were founded during those years and others too. These cities were evangelized not by Paul personally, but by his fellow workers. He had multiplied himself. Paul's stay in Ephesus was the climax of his ministry. It was even better than all this travel that he was doing sharing the gospel. Now there were lots of people sharing the gospel. So Paul, arguably one of the most intelligent, gifted, energetic disciples the church has ever known, he reached farther, established more churches by equipping others than he could ever have done himself. And thank God, because the gospel has kept going up to you, me, and others. Pastors Tim and Larry restructured Penn Valley Church, I'm going to guess about 20 years ago, uh, and uh, according to Paul's School of Tyrannus. Some people left Penn Valley Church at that time. They didn't like it because this is a, a great teaching of the word church, and there was a shift, and uh, they, so they, they just decided to go elsewhere. Tim and Larry started with builds, and that morphed into the Pauline team of making strong disciples who could make disciples. And God used Pastor Tim and Larry to continue the church planting work of Penn Valley because Penn Valley was already planting churches. Did you, did you know that this church, Penn Valley Church, has started Hope Valley Community Church in Red Hill, New Life Church, David Allen headed that up, uh, Coopersburg, Proximity Cafe, 422 Corridor Church, Imago Day, Daryl Schwartley, Bucksmont Journey Church, Tony Osmo, Adam Johnson. Did you know all that? Now, two of those, two of those churches no longer exist. Okay? Those journeys were part of Penn Valley's long and often difficult process of collective change and development. But through the pain and sacrifice of all of those church plants, people came to know Christ, and they have been changed for eternity. That's not my place to say, but I'm, I'm going to say it anyway. Well done. Well done. In Chad, Africa, there is a school of evangelism, and so they, uh, they, they teach people to share the gospel. There's a school of missiology. They teach people to start churches. And they're led by Chadians, Justin and Paul. Uh, they're the church planting leader. There are also church planting leaders uh, in CAR, Cameroon, Congo, and Nigeria. They asked Frank Poole, some of you know him, he's our Africa director, and uh, myself to equip them. Now, Justin and Paul lead almost 100 church planters. Who am I to, to equip them? And for a while, they were planting a microchurch every four days. Okay, now really, who am I to equip them? Due to the strength of Islam, however, uh, in Chad, church planting has slowed. And so Frank and I, we are creating master classes in missional leadership for these African leaders. And the idea is to equip them in missiological concepts, principles, so that they can deal with the challenges that come at them. They can Islam 
animism, opposition obstacles that they encounter. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we, if we heard the same testimony that we heard in Acts uh, 18, 19, all who live on the continent of Africa heard the word of the Lord through those Chadian church planters, through those Central African church planters, Cameroonian, Congolese uh, church planters. Multiplication. It's humbling to be part of that, and it's oh so cool. Frank and I are simply drawing on what God did through Paul in Ephesus. Now, fortunately for all of us, once again, thanks to Paul's multiplication work, the gospel has reached to us, to Africans and beyond. Fourth journey, Paul goes from Jerusalem to Rome. All right, this one is basically imprisonment. And so here he's doing a lot of writing to the churches that he already started. And to quote Penn Valley's Impact 21 document, Paul's last letters were written to establish churches in the gospel, in their mission, in their maturity, properly functioning as households of God. So there we have it. We have his, his four journeys. Think evangelism. Think contextualization. Faithful to scripture. Culturally pertinent. Think multiplication. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And think establishment. Strong, well-anchored disciples who reproduce. Louise and Paul Clubiter's journeys. All right, we shared some of those uh, this morning, but uh, our first journey started out in 1987, University Evangelism, the Dijon Church Plant. Uh, we were working with universities, uh, European university students. Just think evangelism. That was pretty much our first journey. Second journey, 2004, I was Europe director. There, the mandate that God gave me, the, uh, our colleagues had started churches as well, but most of them were still leading those church plants. So the mandate was, okay, now, just like Acts 14, Titus 1, we need to have European leaders. We need to have European elders. And there, too, God did that. So it was pretty much missional vision, direction, leadership. Third journey, 2014, international church planting director where God used Louise and myself to create an apostolic missional network for Encompass. And this isn't saying, wow, you know, aren't we great people? No. It's, it's, it's to share what God has been doing through normal people. And uh, the, uh, the, the heart of the Church Planning Network's activity, yes, it's contextualization and it's apostolic foundation laying of new churches built upon Christ and his work among people who are incomprehensibly different from you and me. Our teammates in Brazil, Chad, France, Ireland, Japan, Poland, Turkey, Kyrgyzstan, Vietnam, here in the United States, contextualization is in place. Teammates are being faithful to scripture and well-woven into these wildly different cultural fabrics. They're incarnating and sharing the good news of Christ. Discipleship is happening. Disciple-making is happening and churches are being started. The network is well-established and functioning. So I believe that God has, yeah, the, the mandate is finished. That mandate that God had given me is finished. It's time for a change. And so um, for Louisa and, and my next journey, I proposed to Dave Giles. This was all our initiative. I said, look, I, I think we're done. And so here's what we're thinking. Drawing on the lessons learned in those journeys, to create and direct missional equipping for and encompasses entire global staff. So moving from about 40 people to 120 people, but you know, in, in even more diverse situations. 
the biblical heart of missional equipping, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So missional equipping here, equip our teammates, but also people in the Karis Alliance for mission. Our, uh, our vision, little catchphrase, Equip, encompass, and carous individuals to maximize their unique gift mixes by working together arm in arm in order to reveal Jesus and his riches to the nations. Now, we'll, we'll stay in France, in Dijon, France. And uh, as of January of this upcoming year, uh, I'll be senior director of missionally equipping. So we've got prayer cards to prove it. They might show up in your mailboxes and things like that. So if you want newsletters, get a hold of us because we both send those out and you can follow that. And many, many of you pray. Many, many of you give and we thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Because you're part of what God is doing. What will Penn Valley's, Penn Valley Church's next journey look like? Your journeys have been led by Pastor Griffith, he was an evangelist. Pastor Wumble, teacher of the word. Pastor Bull, apostle, all about church planting. Pastor Orm, prophet, who was all about making faithful disciples who reproduce. Pastor Andrew Saunders, a shepherd who cares for families, individuals, global workers like Louise and Paul. And I would like to publicly thank Andrew for his ministry to us. I don't know how many times he, he wrote to me and said, you know, I'm praying for you. Or to ask, how can I pray for you? And so, if, uh, you know, thanks, Andrew, for your encouragement, for your prayers, for being a good pastor to us. And I know that he's a man of prayer and he's been praying for you as well. But at the end of this month, you'll be without a pastor. Got to be destabilizing. And every minute of the day, her polarizing issues that are shouted from the rooftops by the media and pundits of your choice. You know, so why am I talking about Paul's journeys, about mission? See, those, those polarizing issues create tensions in the church. We see it and feel it, that tension in the Dijon church. I, I don't know about Penn Valley, but unless I miss my guess, you see and feel tension in the Penn Valley church because of all this stuff. Back in the 1990s, the Karis Fellowship used to be called the, the Grace Brethren Fellowship. And so the Grace Brethren Fellowship was going through tense times. There was division over doctrinal interpretations. And Tom Julian, some of you know him, just thoroughly appreciate the man. He just turned 90. Um, and uh, he, so I, I asked him, you know, why he was talking about, you know, the importance of being on mission. I mean, I, I kind of knew that, but, you know, he, he, gave, me, uh, he gave me some, some further food for thought. Tom told me, well, Paul, he's got this really deep voice. <clears throat> if we focused more on reaching the world for Christ, we'd have less time for fighting and bickering among ourselves. Those are wise words. Those are really wise words. So, during these destabilizing days, we want to remain on mission. It's the apostolic mandate. It's something that God has given to his church. 
We want to be on mission to those people who are like us, to those people who are different, and even to those people we don't like. Because Jesus died for each and every person, for people who are like us, different, strange, foreign. I don't know, in, in my life, so people like Adrian, who used to be Brian. Okay. The lesbian couple I met at the 4th of July party at the Chateau who were thoroughly intrigued by baseball. Mustafa the Iranian refugees, and, and there are others. People, it's just not for my world. Different people in your life who need Jesus. Who has he put on your path who are part of your journey? Because, yeah, you're there to share Jesus with them, but also they're part of his plan for your personal transformation and development. Now again, we, the church, we've been entrusted with the apostolic mandate that Paul embodied, make disciples and nations among all kinds of people, even those who are extremely different from us. And as we embrace that vision for the world, remaining faithful to Jesus, remaining faithful to his word, we have confidence. Kind of a nice thing to happen these days, have confidence in the midst of all this stuff. Because no matter what happens in this, and in this world, I mean, when you think of it, so sickness and plague, it's not new. Racial and political tension, it's not new. We just did a trek through the Acts, but what I skipped over were the crises in Acts. Listen to this. Intimidation, imprisonment of Peter and John, assassination of Stephen and James, internal threats from Ananias, Sapphira, Simon the sorcerer, division within the missionary team, Paul and, and Barnabas, doctrinal conflicts between believers, Jewish background, Greek background, church members, all lots of sick, sick people. Paul himself is bitten by a poisonous viper, Jewish fake news about Paul, Roman politicking, bureaucracy, stonewalling, and more. It's all in the Acts. This stuff isn't new. And we have hope because of the message of Acts. It's this overarching message. Listen to Luke's leitmotif, his, his refrain. We sang refrains this morning. This is, this is Luke's refrain. It's the organizing principle of the book of Acts. Here we go. Verses 2, uh, chapter 2, 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 6, 7, the word of God kept spreading. And the number of disciples continued to increase greatly, 931. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Spirit, it multiplied, 1224. But the word of God increased and multiplied, 1349. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, 165. So the churches were strengthened in faith. They increased in numbers daily, 1920. The, the crescendo is coming. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily, and now the climactic finale, 2830. Paul stayed two full years in his own rented lodging, welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching things about the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. I. Howard Marshall comments, all the emphasis lies on that last phrase, the last sentence of the book. 
Nothing that men can do can stop the progress and ultimate victory of the gospel. Nothing that men can do can stop the progress and ultimate victory of the gospel. We have hope because nothing, nothing, nothing whatsoever can stop the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are our rock and that you've given us your word that we can build our lives upon. You've given us your spirit to be on mission for you, whether it be to people like us, unlike us, whatever. We thank you for the hope that you give us, what you've done in the past, and the promise of your presence today. And Lord, uh, I pray for the Penn Valley Church. It's a destabilizing time, but we thank you because you are faithful. You accompanied, you started the Penn Valley Church, and you accompanied this church up till today, and you will continue to do that. Thank you for that. Guide the elders, guide, guide the members, guide this church so that Penn Valley Church continues to be on mission just as they had from the, have from the beginning both here in Telford and around the world, so that you might be glorified. Pray this in your precious name. Amen.